Welcome to this episode of Anesthesia On Air, the podcast from the Royal College of Anesthetists. My name is Scarlett McNally, and I'm Deputy Director for the Centre for Perioperative Care. I'm also a consultant orthopaedic surgeon and honorary clinical professor at Brighton and Sussex Medical School. Today, we're joined by Dr. Joanna McLaughlin, who I'd like to introduce herself, please. Hello, thanks very much for the invitation to join you. I'm Dr. Joanna McLaughlin. I'm a public health doctor. I'm based at the University of Bristol, doing a doctoral research fellowship with NIHR funding at the moment. I'm here to share some preliminary findings from my work. Thank you. And it's been really interesting seeing your work. Um, what we're talking about today is um, patients waiting for joint replacement surgery and the effect of um, optimization and obesity on patients waiting. So should we just kick off with you talking about your research and how important it is um, in the way that these services are managed and patients are cared for? Just far away, thank you. I got interested in this research question because imagine you're waiting for a knee replacement and you have obesity. If you live in one postcode, you won't be eligible for referral to surgery until you lose weight. And yet in another postcode, you might have to wait six months longer than non-obese patients. And in yet another postcode, no such policy affecting your access to surgery. I think that raises an important question about how we support weight loss ahead of elective surgery. And often obesity is included in what's known as a health optimization policy in this way for elective surgery. And we know hip and knee arthroplasty are the main target for these policies. And at last count, so last year, over two thirds of clinical commissioning groups had a policy in place that either restricts or alters people's access to arthroplasty based on their body mass index, BMI. And um, so we have these clinical commissioning groups across the country and they're free to set their own policies. And this has meant we've seen a huge amount of variation. And that goes from quite mild policies where patients are just given advice about weight loss and that run up to surgery, to moderates where there's extra waiting time, right through to severe policies where, as I mentioned, you might be ineligible for referral to surgery if your body mass index is over a certain threshold. And then within that, we see even more variation. So there's variation in how long you have to wait and what BMI thresholds are used. And of course, in the support services that are available to help patients lose weight. And I think variation like that raises the concern that these policies are not evidence based. And I had a particular concern that they might be causing inequalities. And the reason they were introduced, the stated intent then is that the pre-surgical window is this teachable moment where patients could be successfully inspired to make changes in their behaviour and lose weight. The hope being then, of course, that you might reduce the need for surgery where patients feel enough benefits of weight loss on their symptoms. It might make surgery safer and give patients better outcomes if they do still decide to go ahead. But I would argue that we don't know if these health optimization body mass index policies have that intended effect. There are very few published evaluations and more concerningly, no quantification of the unintended consequences of the policy introduction. So they may just be a barrier to access for surgery for those that desperately need it. So I was keen to look into this. 
um, and recognised that because these clinical commissioning groups have introduced their policies in different ways at different times, this produces quite a nice, neat, natural experiment, we would call it. So I used interrupted time series analyses to look at the rates of knee replacement surgery in each commissioning area with the knowledge of whether they had to be in my policy and if so, when they introduced it over the last decade. About half of the clinical commissioning groups I looked at didn't have a BMI policy introduced, so they form a control group, which is really useful to work out what uh, external effects might have been on the rates of surgery. So what did I find then? So in the regions that had no policy, so those control regions, rates of knee replacement surgery increased steadily over time. Whereas in the regions that did choose to introduce a BMI policy, rates increased in the same way in that pre-policy period. But as soon as the policies were introduced, we can observe a reversal in the trend and operation rates drop off and fall significantly to actually a level below that seen in those control group regions, which is really interesting. And this is an observational study, so I can't conclude that the policy introduction is what caused that effect in rates of surgery. But the fact that we've got so many clinical commissioning groups to look at, and we have this control group, as I mentioned, and this natural experiment set up with, with different CCGs introducing the policies at different times, this is likely to be a powerful analysis protected against other explanatory factors, such as a bad flu season, say, in a particular year. I think we need to then ask ourselves, what does a reduction in rates of surgery mean? Is that a success of the policies? Did it mean that patients lost weight, they no longer needed surgery and rates fell? Or we could argue that actually it was a disaster. Dropping rates of surgery means patients have been denied access to surgery. They may have been unable to lose weight in order to have procedures they would have really benefited from. Or perhaps, and most likely, it's something in between. The National Joint Registry is the source of the data I used for the operation rates, and fortunately they include private operations as well as NHS operations, and looking at stratification of results in that way gives us some more insight, I think. So the proportion of privately funded surgery went up in clinical commissioning groups after they'd introduced a body mass index policy, and we can also see a a rate of surgery falling in the least affluent. So actually, this raises strong concerns about worsening health inequalities and unintended consequences of these policies. Thank you, Joanna. That's really um, interesting work. Um, can you quantify it by how much roughly the difference between CCGs with a policy on BMI and without what the difference was or how much they dropped? Yeah, so interestingly, the CCGs that chose to introduce a policy had higher rates of surgery in the first place. So they started at approximately 50 operations per 100,000 of their population aged over 40 in each quarter year. And that rose over time in both groups, as mentioned, until they were quite similar, actually, at the point of policy introduction. So around 65 operations per 100,000 patients um, aged over 40 per quarter. 
And then you see that rate continue to rise in those control groups. So they ended up at a rate over 70. Whereas the groups that did introduce policies, their rate fell back down again. So from around 70 down to 55 or so, leaving quite a big gap in the end there. Thank you. That's quite quite a big drop. And it's very interesting what you say about it's possibly worsening health inequalities because we know that obesity is related to um, socioeconomic status. Um, and it's also quite difficult to tackle. It's not a simple fix. So it, it's bringing in quite a lot of issues that we probably just need to tackle. So just from my point of view, I was I'm, I'm aware that many uh, royal colleges and even some nice guidance suggest that um, obesity shouldn't exclude someone from referral for joint replacement. And it feels almost as if the clinicians and academics are trying to, to, to stop some of these policies. And yet it actually feels like it ought to be a good thing for people to improve before surgery. How do you think we should go move from here? I think we need to be careful about a carrot versus stick approach here. It feels undeniable that helping patients reach a healthy weight in time for surgery would be a good thing. But if we use being able to join the waiting list for surgery or having your operation as a sort of reward for having lost weight, I think that's very problematic. Um, as we know, some groups will definitely find it easier than others to either access services to help them do so, or once they're with those services, um, some will suit certain groups more than others. For example, you might not be very happy to join a group weight management ses session, um, depending on your gender, age, cultural background, all sorts of things. So I think there are inequalities there. Indeed, and, and with many services going online, uh, it's difficult uh, for access for some people. It, it is very difficult. Um, I've been involved with um, trying to get people to do more exercise. And in fact, there's a lot of work around the prehabilitation for surgery, which is kind of coached exercise and nutrition and psychological um, preparation works really well. And the best results are in people with uh, for cancer surgery that they can get fitter for surgery and so forth so that does have good results um, and that we've done some work with movingmedicine.ac.uk about how people can get started with being more active and and also um, it, it's difficult with orthopedic patients particularly because um, the activity sometimes is painful for them so um, again there's work with uh, versus arthritis, the charity have got some very good information for patients on how to be more active to improve pain and uh, yeah, Im improve their results from their operation and sometimes uh, reduce the need for surgery at all. They've got very good resources. And I know Swim England are working on resources for people because obviously swimming is quite good for not being impact loading on your joints. Um, and um, I had a hip replacement last year and I used an electric bike because I could cycle. I couldn't I couldn't walk or, or run, obviously. Um, so things like things like that could be very good. So that's exercise, but that doesn't actually help obesity. It improves um, muscle and fitness. Um, and it, so it's really nutrition we need to focus on. And that's very difficult. And it's difficult, actually, as a surgeon to almost point people in the right direction because you don't want to 
stigmatise people for their weight. Um, and it's always easier to push positive messages such as five a day fruit and vegetables, eating more protein rather than negative ones. So it is quite, it's, it's difficult because it's, as a surgeon, you don't want to do that. But then who else is doing that um, bit of education, advice, um, kind of how does it fit into the pathway? Um, did you find different areas have different ways of doing, doing things and there some are more successful? There was a lot of variation, yes, in what was on offer. Some areas didn't have any funding for support services in place for weight management in particular. So if you were a patient finding yourself in the position where you couldn't join the waiting list until you'd lost enough weight, it would be up to your own endeavours, really without any professional input, which would make things much more difficult. Whereas other areas have a really good setup and a holistic approach to helping people prepare for surgery that addressed much more than just their weight. So smoking cessation was included, help with um, alcohol misuse, um, loneliness. It was really broad ranging in some cases. So that's encouraging. I think that that holistic approach has found a taken hold in some areas, but it doesn't seem just that there is so much variation in what patients can access across the country. Yes, and we've been working at the Centre for Peroctive Care for information and resources for patients and for organisations, and that's on cpoc.org.uk forward slash patients. We've got the fitter, better, sooner resources, and we've actually got evidence that people who prepare for surgery reduce complications by about 50%, 50%, and reduce their length of stay by one to two days. So it's, it's, it's everything. It's the preparing for surgery. It's getting the team to work across the silos so that the post-operative um, advice and mobility, for example, is given right very, very early so that um, people aren't waiting for things that are predictable. So we've done quite a lot of work on there and we've got huge resources, both for patients and for staff and indeed for managers planning services of what bits of the pathway you can tweak to make things better for the each individual patient. There's some work on surgery schools it, for patient education, um, often with their family members or within their culture to try and work out what, what they can do. Because when I heard your research before, you were talking about how it's important not to you know, just give someone a leaflet or tell them to watch a little video. It's got to be individualised to them and it's got to be in their local area. And that that is much um that's much more likely to be successful. That's, that's, can you expand on that? You, you mentioned that um, to me before. Yes, I did some qualitative work previously looking at a case study of one region that had introduced extra waiting time actually for their patients with obesity and spoke to some patients on that pathway. And broadly, their message was that actually they expected to be asked about their weight and their smoking by their GPs, their physios, everyone they were seeing along that pathway on the way to surgery, and that they were actually quite accepting of that time being a good opportunity to make headway on their health, but that the options on offer to help them lose weight weren't always adequate, and that particularly longer-term help with maintaining weight loss was an issue. And so, yes, I do think we need to look at how we could improve how bespoke the way in which we support patients can be 
and actually what sort of time period that covers. We know waiting lists are so long at the moment that it might be all very well helping someone lose 10 kilos at the start on the waiting list, but what happens to them while they wait for a surgery date? Thank you. That's that's really helpful. It's trying to get the kind of the surgery episode um, as part of the patient's general health, healthy lifestyle, hopefully, that at teachable moment, um, as you mentioned before. I think part of the problem is that there isn't an easy fix for obesity. For many patients, they've tried with diets over the years, and it is very difficult. And the traditional approach of low calorie and low fat doesn't always work for patients. Um, and I know the Scientific Advisory Committee on Nutrition um, has looked at the evidence on low carbohydrate diets. And for some patients, those work better because when you eat carbohydrate, it gets converted to sugar and you get that rush of insulin and then feel hungry. And also the sugar is then converted to fat. So for some patients, a low carbohydrate approach would be better. And some people have got good results about reversing um, type 2 diabetes with that. Um, and for other, other studies on intermittent fasting or reducing the time at which one eats works for some other people. So it does feel very varied and it's very difficult as a non-specialist because um, you want to say something to the patient, but you don't want to say the wrong thing that stigmatizes them or you don't want to tell them to do something that isn't going to work. So, and also you don't want to refer them to a dietitian when you know the wait is quite long because we're short of skilled staff. So it's really getting, it feels to me like everyone in the perioperative pathway needs some basic messages such as eat fruit and vegetable and protein and fiber and do some exercise that gets you a bit out of breath but works for you such as swimming or cycling or um, something but it, it kind of should be very simple simple messages that everybody can give and then lot signposting to lots of resources particularly in the local area um, and support and I know with the smoking cessation, what works in some places is having carbon monoxide monitors and people have to go back and be checked up. And it kind of gives people an incentive um, that they're part of a program and doing something together. But it's, it's quite difficult because um, I think your research has highlighted the massive variation around the country. And it, it doesn't seem that, that all of those are working in the patient's best interests. Um, and kind of it's difficult to know where to go where to go from here and it's do you have any top tips for individuals or for organizations i think we can be reassured from the evidence we already have that patients are expecting us to raise issues like weight and exercise and smoking in this window of head, ahead of surgery that they're broadly accepting of that and in lots of cases would welcome um, that discussion and we know that we've made headway in using things like really brief interventions and shared decision making to find the right way forward for people rather than just dictating the path they need to take to tackle something like obesity. So yes, we should be reassured that raising the topic needn't be problematic. And I think another area where we could make some headway is the fear of exercise or movement that we see particularly in this patient group who are waiting for a joint replacement and how that fits into people's beliefs about their ability to lose weight, what they can eat, how much they can exercise. 
feels as if there's some clarity that we could offer patients there. The problem with my research or the, the existing gap is that I was using National Joint Registry data. So I was looking at patients who had surgery. The research doesn't tell us about patients who chose not to have surgery. And I think that's something that would be valuable to look at in a lot more detail. So what are the effects of losing weight and do people see symptom improvement to the point where they don't need surgery as a success? Or actually is the motivation about safer surgery, better outcomes from surgery? I think exploring the motivations for patients behind weight loss would be really important in planning next steps and how we support people to be inspired to make those changes. Thank you. That's that's really interesting because um, it really is that individualized approach and getting and the motivational interviewing and getting the patient patient empowerment or patient activation. It does need to come from from within. Um, we've actually worked with Moving Medicine. That's movingmedicine.ac.uk on uh, some of their resources about it's about it's safe to do exercise and and that it's actually better to do so than not doing so. Um, and I know as an orthopedic surgeon, it's fantastic when people have got good muscles and they can get up, even get up out of bed, go to the toilet, walk. It it, it makes such a difference. And it's it's good working with the charity sectors that have um, you know information for patients on how to get started. So they, it's coming from a good bona fide source and they can just get going and that it's really worth doing. And I think particularly for orthopedic patients, you you want the... The fitness to get through the anaesthetic the heart and lung fitness you want the particular precautions for their limbs and how to use crutches and um, how to walk properly um, and then for everyone you kind of you need the balance um, and you need the strength so people can get out you know lift things and get out of bed and so forth so it's those modalities you need but they should be so simple that they're not scary and you have to send someone to a physio who isn't available because they're so overstretched. It, we should be able to give the clear messages to people, just pick the heart and lung fitness, do the strength, do the balance, that's good. The same as every adult should be doing um, and that it's safe in these conditions. And for organisations, I think that it feels like organisations are doing their best, but it feels quite a blunt instrument, as you said, with the just denying people surgery for certain BMIs. Um, is there anything organisations can change? I think we're at a, an important point in time where the clinical commissioning groups are now um, forming these integrated care systems instead. This is a, an opportunity to review restrictive policies like that and accept that actually they're not in line with what we see in NICE guidance about um, restricting access to surgery or statements from the Royal College of Surgeons and others. They would really encourage this window of time to try and take steps on reducing those types of policies. I think one of the difficulties has been that there's strong public support, unfortunately, for policies that are restrictive around lifestyle type behaviours that um, people perceive as personal responsibility for obesity and smoking. And we can see in published public consultations that actually there was as I say, strong public support for those types of policies. But we need to be guided by the evidence and we need to think um, how we would find it as a patient in that scenario, facing the need for a joint replacement and having obesity rather than what we think is fair for society and penalising that personal responsibility angle. 
Thank you. And I, I think there's a lot of a lot of work around um, the social determinants of health and around behaviour change not being individual responsibility. It's about changing the environment, um, what junk food's available, what nice parks are to go for a nice walk in, that kind of thing. Um, it's really it's about the environment and about your the culture, what's normal for you and your family um, and, and trying to use that rather than it all being individual choice um, and the difficult bit is the people making the decisions often from the class of person who is able to make individual choice but uh, we need to understand the whole range of patients that are requiring NHS treatment and have um, and don't have the same efficacy the same ability to make individual changes of that magnitude um, we need to work with them because people people do make huge changes to their lives but it needs to be done in a different way and bringing the culture with them yeah I think of particular concern are the patients at the higher end of that body mass index spectrum I've seen research that's quantified the fact that people with a body mass index of over 40 who are asked to go away and lose weight before they can access surgery generally fail to do so and don't seek a second opinion on their symptoms for their knee, hip, whatever it might be, which is really concerning, isn't it? With these policies are probably not having the intended effect of inspiring that group to lose enough weight to access surgery in the normal way. And we mustn't exclude people like that. Because there's a problem with people with a high BMI who ought to have a hip replacement or knee replacement, for example, um, not getting it, that they're then requiring a lot more um, services and support because they can't do all the things that they want to get on with their life for so it's not a question of the health service saving money not doing a joint replacement for example it's actually um, going to cost more in the long run as well as the impact on that individual um, and we need to bear that in mind the long-term effects of actually not operating it's an amazingly successful operation yes I think we've seen the evidence now that as procedures, they're cost effective for nearly every patient and pleased to see in the proposed new NICE guidance for osteoarthritis that rather than restricting access to surgery, it's more an encouragement to just discuss individual risks for that patient based on their BMI if they do contemplate surgery. That's really helpful. Thanks. And um, thank you for adding to the evidence that's available. Just and getting into the nuances of why some policies work and why some don't and the, the variation in the country is just astonishing um, really and it, the variation across the NHS is astonishing and I think the, the, the key message that Centre for Productive Care is trying to say is that the waiting list should be a preparation list and we need to use that time to the best effect for everybody um, but what every individual needs will be slightly different um, and what everybody individually is capable of will be slightly different. And we need their families around to support them. So if anyone's got family members on waiting lists, that going out for a walk is really good. Fresh air, um, fruit and vegetables, all that stuff actually really does make a difference. We've got evidence um, showing that. Are there any final points that we should want to leave our audience with? I'm just starting a next phase of work, which is qualitative research to try and better understand what guides people's decisions over introducing these health optimization policies. So speaking with commissioners and policymakers and clinicians, 
and also trying to understand what was behind that downturn in the rates of surgery I described, whether there were other factors aside from introducing a body mass index policy. I'm sure listeners have their own insights into that and would be very pleased to hear from anybody who could could share that insight. I think it's an important question to understand why the policies have the effects they do and what we need to consider next in terms of barriers and facilitators and getting the right policies in place. Thank you. So I think it would be very helpful with the new formation of ICSs, integrated care systems, to be able to try and bring together, for example, the health coaching um, or social prescribing, particularly for people who are on waiting lists. And there's millions of people on waiting lists and we need to uh, ideally, we could target people who are on waiting lists for extra help and support that's targeted and focused on them as an individual and their family for support. So I think um, that's uh, everything. It's been lovely discussing your research. That was Dr. Joanna McLaughlin's uh, research. So watch out for um, updates on that. We'll be inviting you back. And thank you for everyone for listening. Uh, if you have any comments on what we've discussed during the podcast, we'd love to hear from you. You can get in touch by emailing cpoc, C-P-O-C, at rcoa.ac.uk, or you can tweet us at cpoc underscore news. And if you'd like to be updated regularly, we've got a free newsletter. So again, contact us to sign up for the newsletter. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you for listening to Anesthesia On Air from the Royal College of Anaesthetists. Make sure you don't miss out on the latest episodes by clicking subscribe on your favourite podcast platform. Also, if you enjoyed this episode, please make sure you give us a review. It helps others find our podcast. If there is a topic you'd like us to cover or you'd like to feature in the podcast, please email podcast at rcoa.ac.uk. And finally, if you would like to access more podcasts as well as videos, e-learning, webinars and our program of events and courses you can find them all online at rcoa.ac.uk forward slash education we hope to see you again soon please note all views expressed in this podcast are those of the individuals and not those of the royal college of anaesthetists